Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. As I work through one of our typical Florida summer storms, I notice that I've been a little anxious lately, and I think it's a combination of events. This new normal engendered by COVID-19 and the continued urgency of the Black Lives Matter movement with yet another black man shot by the police, this time from behind, seven times, influenced my mental state for sure. And of course, the certain to be contentious upcoming election. In moments like this, it's good to hear from people who have spent a lot of time and energy trying to make sense of the social world we find ourselves in. It's good for me at least. So I reached out to American Indian Movement activist Ward Churchill, former chair of the Ethnic Studies Department at the University of Colorado, as part of my loosely themed interviews with artists on social change. As a writer, his books and articles are legion, and as an activist, he's been struggling for the rights of Native peoples for over 50 years. A few years ago, he and his wife relocated to Atlanta, and I caught up with him recently via Zoom to engage in a discussion about how America got to where we are, where we might be going, and his role in the struggle. The first thing I wanted to know, however, was how he sees his role at this point in his life in his early 70s. Okay. Good? Yep. What do you consider yourself at this point? Uh, an activist first, a writer, an academic, an intellectual? Like, where, where would you hang your hat? All of them? None of them? Well, still all of them to a varying degrees. Not as much an activist as I was. No longer physically capable of doing certain things that I did 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And I've been an activist that long and longer. Unfortunately, <laughs> by the time you're in your 70s, you're probably not going to be hurtling the barricades anymore. And if you throw the tear gas canister back, your arm's probably going to be disabled because rotator cap doesn't work as well as it once did. Little things like that. As an activist, as an organizer, you know, probably the, uh, the writing, although I'm slower at it than I used to be, there's that too. And I don't quite know what you mean by intellectual, but... That's open for debate. Yeah. Moves more in that direction. And probably will increasingly move in that direction because I'm not going to get younger. And fortunately, there's, you know, people stepping into that role. Right. Which is as it should be. Mm -hmm. Got more from the front lines of supporting role. Mm -hmm. Um and I support whoever is engaged in opposition in a way that is appropriate to the context in which they're operating. There's not a universal. Like I said, there is not a recipe, all right? Tactics are situational. What, what is it to confront you? What's the benefit of confronting in a certain way as opposed to, you know, likely costs? You have to consider that your action does not succeed worry about galvanizing those who are in opposition with you, all right? They do not have to take the same actions, positions you do. We're different people. We have collective experience, but within that individual experiences, all people don't have the same aptitude towards the same things. So what we can demand is that I support people in struggle, in opposition, to continuation of business as usual, status quo, irrespective of whether I necessarily agree with them all, all times. I will say this. I've never been nonviolent in my orientation, in my profession of who I am, what I'm about. I've been active for over 50 years, and in that 50-year period of time, probably upwards of 90%, certainly, of all the actions I've engaged in would meet anybody's definition of nonviolent political expression. Okay. But I've never forsworn the prerogative of defending myself, defending others, taking action that will nullify the perpetration of violence in communities in which I work, or more broadly, perpetrators of violence among analogous communities worldwide. Okay. The priority is where I am, but it doesn't stop there. 
Yeah, I approached you originally as thinking of you as a writer and viewing writing as an art. Um, I just found some something online that said writing is a form of art because it exercises imagination. It's a form of expression and it's a powerful influencer. So the influencer part um, was what drew me to you, you know, writing as an art, but also focusing on trying to make social change through your art. Uh, And that was kind of why I wanted to talk to you as seeing you kind of as an artist as well as all these other things. Cause you know, if that's true, if you can influence or at least document what's happening through, you know, through writing, then what's, you know, what kind of, what res- do you have a responsibility then, or what is, how do you use that writing in, in the best way to effectuate social change? Well, again, that's an aptitude sort of thing. Okay. Now, what do you approach it as an art? And I have at times done that. I would put poetry more squarely into the artistic realm than nonfiction prose writing, for example. But I, I do view it. I mean, you can have, well, let me get back to the poetry for a second. I have written and published poetry times past. So that, that's consciously approaching it as art, I would suppose, although there's always a political content of what I write in poetic terms. And I haven't written poetry for a long time, but within my portfolio, I guess, if you want to put it that way. But I'm always conscious of the need to sort of carry people, to try to convey the meaning of your content in my political writing, which takes me away from anything resembling, as a sociologist, you probably recognize sociological writing is deadly dull, by and large. Now, there's exceptions to that, but but since I'm an old guy, let me pull C. Wright Mills out. Yeah, it was quite lively, but all of that data was in there. Yeah, yeah. And on the other hand, you got Howard Zinn. Right. And, you know, Howard had the same facts, but Howard was presenting in a narrative form that very definitely interpreted. Well, I would place myself in that vein, and consciously so, that includes Mills and Zinn and Vince Harding and... You know, Walter Rodney, for that matter. Okay. Well, he wrote formalist stuff, and he's a Marxist, and I'm not. And, you know, there's, there are divisions, but he was always trying to engage people, explain the experience that attended the phenomena he was describing in terms of data. Mm-hmm. So I was always doing that and trying to craft it so that it read well, right. which I care how it reads. So maybe just I'd start with uh, one of the questions I had posed on the email, uh, just your general thoughts about what's happening. Cause I, I don't know, I kind of view this as a, as a pretty heavy duty time in American history with COVID-19, the black lives matter, this contentious election coming up, you know, in the next couple of months, you know, just wanted to sort of hear what you had to say about that overall. And then I can get more specific in a minute. Well, my first uh, response to that is, so much for the so-called post-racial society, eh? And we didn't have to wait for the pandemic for that. I mean, the response to Obama and going for Trump and just, I mean, he made uh, Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon seem circumspect by comparison. It was just flat-out appeal to white nationalist sentiment, uh, (laughs) race hatred, basically. Lately, they're calling it caste system. Um, Isabel Wilkerson's book that just came out, which actually frames it quite well, but, you know, how the social structuration works off race. Race has never been a complete explanation of things either, but race has served the function. Racism has served the function of sort of divide and conquer. Um, Hey, I'm a white cracker out in the hinterland, no matter how bad off I am, at least I ain't black kind of thing. That psychology has been played and played and played. It's internalized. It's set so deep at this point that it can take something catastrophic, I think, to break it loose. Maybe the pandemic 
maybe the economic collapse, maybe these factors begin to combine in such a way as to break the log jam, although indications right now are to me that it's going in the opposite direction with a significant segment of that group that rallied to Trump, that they're becoming more intractable, more entrenched, more completely off the rails in terms of self-interest and such, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting to see how many people die as a result of the Sturgis rally, just the motorcycle rally. You had quarter million plus people show up. Wow. Yep. You know? Not a lot of masks, I'm guessing. Not a lot of masks. <laughs> Makes South Dakota unique, being one of the few places in the country where people tend to congregate in masks wearing leather. Oh, right. right. That's right. Jeez. Yeah. That's, that's a huge rally. Well, yeah, it's not a second wave and first wave never ended. It's a resurgent initial wave, yeah. a double wave, uh, without ever getting to a second. Mm-hmm. So where does this go? Right. I don't know. Do you think the election, the results of the election will, will have an impact on whether this is really a watershed moment or not? Well, if it's going to impact it one way or another. If Trump you know, loses, is yeah, what we expect. But Joe Biden suddenly is the bright, shining alternative to what's going on. My God. Right. That is what it was that we were seriously opposing if we were oppositionists prior to Trump coming in. So the only thing that keeps him from being an outright fascist is he's not capable of remembering the lines. He's got a vocabulary of about 19 words and he, he's missing the flair for public speaking that uh, some prior fascist figureheads have had, mm-hmm. but it's not for lack of desire. Mm-hmm. So you get this and a lot of it, the people who are clustering around them are more coherent, more serious, more capable. So we're back to that. Yeah. Uh, if you go back in the early days of CNN, when the original iteration of Crossfire came out, and that was supposedly left-right discourse, okay? okay. They were going to debate the issues. And on the right, you had Bob Novak. Okay, that's truth in advertising. This is right-wing, mm-hmm. okay? Congenital liar. Apologist for anything short of Auschwitz, and maybe if the right people had done it, Auschwitz too. Also, on the left, you had Tom Braden, who was the CIA station chief in Italy that subverted the election to prevent the communists from collecting a democratic victory in the post war context, which propels the Italian fascists into a resurgence about. 15, 20 years later. Okay, that's the left. So you got the center right versus the harder right, and that's the initial framing of permissible discourse in the U.S. Long about time Ted Turner was kicking CNN into high gear, all right? And things have moved hard to the right ever since. Yeah, it hasn't changed much. Well, it's gotten worse. It's got, yeah, it's got, yeah. Yeah. What about some of the changes that you see are, um, you know, like the Confederate monuments coming down here in the South. You hear a lot about that. Some of the like corporate branding is changing Aunt Jemima, you know, getting rid of that kind of stuff. Uh, Do you think those are just kind of token changes or are those, are those capable of making structural changes? changes? I mean, there is, there's a content to it, but it's a very superficial thing. And if every Confederate statue, every memorialization of Unipero Serra, every Columbus statue in a country were to be leveled tomorrow, the names of the offenders taken off all of the buildings and so on, would that, for example, mean Indians get land back? Would that mean that there is some sort of a, compensation to black people for, yeah, Mm -hmm. blacks and Indians in slave labor conditions built the economy, particularly down where we are in the South. Right. But that's what fed the industrialization of the North, and that's the half that's never been told. Does that 
tangibly change anything if they form more diversity committees and yet another commission to study the discontent caused by white violence, whether that be the 1919 stuff or the more recent iterations where it's been increasingly institutionalized and stuff about the police. How many times has this been studied? How many times have they arrived at the con obvious conclusion? How many times have they ignored it and maintained the status quo? I was activist in Peoria, Illinois, after I got out of the Army in late 60s. I worked with a guy by the name of Mark Clark. He was the first person killed the night they assassinated Fred Hampton. He was the guy in the chair. Wow. Mark Mark was killed. He was killed by a black cop by the name of Gloves Davis. At that moment, had 24 um, police brutality complaints pending for review against him, and on that basis, had been placed in this elite unit. It was essentially a death squad. I was a black cop. Okay, it does not make any black person who aspires to have a positive effect by signing up for the police, but it signifies that Bean County, the complexions of people in a, the forcible end of maintaining the status quo does not change the job requirement of the enforcement of the status quo apparatus. And that's essentially the little game that's been being played since the long 60s is Bean County. How many people of this food group, as we used to call it at the University of Colorado, we've got to have X number of blacks, we've got to have Y number of Latinos, we've got to have a certain number of Asians, okay, and representation, and we need to replicate that on the faculty. Okay, we're bringing in students, but we need to have faculty members, and it's complexion, it's melanin content, it's not the content of your mind. So what they're always looking for is to get respectable, well-indoctrinated junior partners in maintenance of the status quo. If they can get black folk to say what they want, have been saying all along, validated as being, to some extent at least, true and accurate. So you learn, even if you don't believe it, to toe the company line verbally, you adjust your intellectuality or the articulation of what it is you believe to parameters that are predefined as being permissible and acceptable. And they'll allow certain tokens uh, to run them up from that proof being the um, liberal quality context for the discourse. But basically, they're getting critical mass and using quite often the representatives they recruit from so-called minority communities to reinforce the status quo to serve as gatekeepers their own right because it preserves and protects their position, their status, their privilege. That's the best outcome. <laughs> the other one, the other one, you know, the best outcome is to return to that and maintain it as a way of doing things. And that's what they're pushing on now. And frankly, Kamala Harris is a prime example of that. You know, her record as a prosecutor speaks for itself. Yes. And that's their preferred representative of black people. And people have been so excluded for so long. The symbolism of having anybody with the right complexion in there is appealing and being framed as an alternative to the blinding whiteness. You need uh, shades. You need to be wearing dark sunglasses to enter the domain of the Republican Party. Otherwise, you go snow blind from the complexion of the, of the audiences that are there, except the red MAGA hats. But the... Okay. The, the best outcome is to, to return to what I was talking about. The other outcome is just inept deployment of force. Okay. And an escalating trajectory because it doesn't have to worry about re-election. It manage to pull off by one means or three being retained in office. Yeah, that's the fear. Um, so, it reminds me of an essay you wrote. I don't remember the title of it. It's been a while since I read it, but something about, to paraphrase, you're saying if you want to, if the, if the government or the authorities are allowing you to protest and it's because it's not doing any good. <laughs> so exactly. words, kind of go where they're repressing and that that is what threatens them. So I was, that's why I was wondering about all these changes we see. If the government is kind of allowing them and supporting them, is it really 
ultimately threatening the status quo or not? And it sounds like no. perhaps not. No. you got a, an opposition self-styled that's entirely complicit in that, that deploys marshals to make sure you're conforming to the stipulations of the state and issuing permits, applying for a permit to exercise your constitutional rights in the first place. Okay. But assuming you've done that, then deploy your own um, personnel, usually referred to as security, to do the cops' work to march you, like self-herding sheep down the street into free speech pens where you're out of sight and out of mind of the people you're supposed to be making this sort of display of discontent to, which then translates into a series of speakers who are speaking truth to power. Uh, as if power somehow didn't know what it was doing, and as if you, collaborationists that you are, going along with all this reduction of any possible destabilizing effect of things, had anything to say to power that would be beneficial for power to learn. I mean, they'll pick it up because they're monitoring everything. It's all being recorded, and if you've got anything to say, it's of use, so they'll suck it into their system, but Basically, it's an exercise kind of like masturbation, which can, I suppose, be gratifying in a way, but it doesn't really have much consequence beyond your personal comfort zone. If the state is sanctioning not only your activity, but the way or your issue, but the ways in which you're pursuing articulating, okay, you are presenting absolutely no discomfort to the state. And if you're not even being making things uncomfortable, what change need they affect? Certainly nothing. They may do cosmetic if there's enough. If there's enough of you, cosmetic changes may occur. They may take down some statues. They may change the name of a couple of buildings. You may see a person of color hired to be the diversity officer in some institutional context. You'll see two other people hired into junior executive positions in some corporate enterprise, whatever. There's lots of analogies to this, okay? But as far as anything substantive, fundamental, no, no. Sort of paraphrase Frederick Douglass, power concedes nothing without a fight, you know? So, yeah, which is not to say armed struggle, bombings, picking up the gun. There's some sort of purity in that, and it's a requirement, okay? But one does not concede the option. If you've got the option, then they, that being the language of enforcement, okay? And the presumption of the state to have a right to monopolize that exercise of force. If you breach that, then you're something to be considered seriously. If you are recognize as having the capacity. You don't have to necessarily use it, but your bargaining position is stronger. If you forego that taking pledges of nonviolence in a violent context in order to protest the violence, you're impotent. That brings me to another question. The um, and you brought up Marx a minute ago. The, um, a lot of my training, if we were to say, how do you effectuate social change? Uh, change the economic structures in society. Other people might say change the political narratives, and some people might say change the culture first. Address the culture, then everything comes into play. And you kind of made a distinction there between the culture and the political. Uh, can we address them separately? Do they need to be addressed all together, or does one have primacy? To make They're interactive. Primacy would occur situationally, too. It depends on the, on the context we're addressing. There is not a general prescription. The iron laws of history and dialectical materialism notwithstanding, the economy is not always predominating, but it can never be disregarded by definitions of political event when you alter the status quo. Politics go into it. Now, is that paramount? Well, it depends on the situation and what time. 
do you reach people, galvanize people with economic, political arguments as opposed to other kinds of cultural expression? Highly debatable, but I would say all three need to be continuously engaged. And it's kind of like water. It's going to find its own level in terms of what's most, in fact, even mobilizing people. But you might notice for a while, nothing's been particularly effective in motivating people in the opposition for a whole generation or more. Not that there haven't been people who are activists and all of that, but it's been kind of ebb tide. A couple questions, maybe more specific to Native issues, if that's all right. Uh, Thinking about Black Lives Matter and some of the protests we've seen and whatnot, is there overlap between African-American issues and Native American issues? Can they be addressed together or do they need to be separately addressed? Well, both. Because they're overlapping communities, too. All right. If you actually look at the early days of uh, the development of the slave economy, North American English colonies, at least, the first phase, there's a lot more Indians than Africans who were enslaved. And you had the remnant of the uh, one, one chunk of what had been uh, Susquehannocks, who became known as the Westos, who were essentially a mercenary slave outfit, moved from up in the Ohio Valley, in that area, ripped down the Appalachian chain to present-day Georgia and South Carolina. And they were slave catchers for the English traders. And you had this point, early 1600s, when there were a lot more native people being transported out of the major port, which was Charleston, South Carolina. That's where the importation of slaves from Africa or really from the West Indies for the most part. They'd take them from Africa to the West Indies and Barbados in particular and then import them to the U.S. Well, it wasn't the U.S. yet, but to Charlestown. There's a lot more Native people going out to the Indies than more coming, Africans coming in. Hmm. And you actually had a one of my favorite things, an instruction manual that was put out by one of the people who had established a plantation to aspirants who came in with the resources to acquire land and wanted to establish plantations of their own. And he said, you know, you're going to need a labor force. And my recommendation of that is you acquire a couple of good work-age, able-bodied African men, okay, and a dozen or so Native women of childbearing age. Okay. Well, how do you figure that's going to work in practice? Okay. And you got this growing population of slaves going a lot faster than would be accounted for, except that you've got children born into slavery. But if the men are preponderantly African and the women are preponderantly Native, what's the outcome of that? And that's what I mean, they're overlapping communities. A lot of that history has been lost, and people have internalized the pathologies that have been imposed, really, by the dominant society for reasons of its own and the implementation or imposition of race law as a rationalization of the economy of slavery, and but also the dispossession of Native people. Okay? So you got that... Inherent overlap needs a lot of clarification, needs to be worked through. And we may be on the first phases of that. But in terms of things that don't go to that, you know, you have some conscious of that. And you got people understand themselves to be biracial, red and black, or triracial, red, white, black. There's a whole vernacular down here in the southeast in particular. Apart from that, you kind of got to different experiences and somewhat different issues between those who identify as black and those who identify as native. Okay. But you've got a common pressure. So you've got that commonality right from the get go. And it's a matter of really paying attention to one another and understanding where those commonalities lie. When black lives matter arose and they're talking about the disproportionate infliction Know, lethal force against black men in particular, but it wasn't exclusive to men. If you're going to 
use the term disproportionate than is disproportionately men. In any case, that was real enough, you know, and brown people too. Not even for being targeted, but not at quite the same rate as black. But what nobody was saying in the early days of that was that native men in the same age group that was the most impacted in the black community were marginally, but nonetheless, even more heavily impacted. So you had a blog that started Native Lives Matter. Well, now you see a more collaborative framing of, of things. They still call them Black Lives Matter, but yeah. there's various groups mm-hmm. that are impacted. Well, I'm talking to people of Mexican, you're basically talking about indigenous people with a different colonial language and cultural imposition. We were talking Indians yeah. who are brainwashed the same way people are brainwashed here to thinking that there's something other than who they are or should be or should be. And that's the real killer. If you think you should be somebody other than who you are, then rather than claiming, reclaiming yourself, letting someone else. And that someone's pretty clear here in terms of actually as a matter of law, in a lot of cases, the definitions by which other define who you are. If they can do that, they can do anything else. Okay. If you can reclaim your identity, understand who you are and act upon that understanding, fine. But you don't go to school to learn that one. You grow up to learn that one. You interact interact. with your community to know that one. Yeah, I assume that kind of relates to sovereignty overall. I think about the 60s. You were talking about being around in the, the extended 60s. Black Power, Red Power, Core, SNCC, all these groups. Uh, and it seemed like a pretty big tenant uh, platform of the American Indian movement was sovereignty, sovereign rights, things like that. Is that kind of what you're getting at when you're saying just reclaiming who you are? Yeah, um, in a way, but it's more of a personal sovereignty. An individual basis, you cannot allow others to define who you are. you got to have that sense of self, self-concept. If you haven't got that, then it just becomes a sort of a symbolic exercise. If you can't have that sense of self, you cannot fit into a community, really, in a meaningful way as, as a part of it. You can be allied to it. You can be of service to it. Perhaps you can do damage to it. You can put your external because your own identity is being defined in terms of things you learn as script that's a performance in a way most of the time but where the rubber meets the road who are you that's a good sociological question you know Her- okay. irving irving goffman he was one of my favorite sociologists here at mills was maybe my favorite but i love goffman some of his work and that impression mm-hmm. management you know like we're all constantly trying to manage other people's impressions of us and the reality sometimes just gets lost you know or it doesn't ever show up yeah yeah that's absent of sense, an actual sense of self. It stems from that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like I say, that goes to personal sovereignty. Okay. Of getting, being able to uh, form a concrete, firm understanding of who you are and why. Okay, you have that. It works collectively as well. That's okay. the basis for forming community. Solidarity is not just a word, but it's mutual concern and consideration, sense of identity, um, perception of interest, all of that. American Indian Movement locked in on that because that's by law in the United States, too. If you look to Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution of the United States, the United States position was that Treaties could be entered into only by the central government of the United States and then only with fully sovereign peers, other nations, not subordinate parts of itself by any stretch, okay, not subparts of other um, sovereign entities either because that would be an abridgment of their sovereignty, an act of aggression. So moving on that basis, You've got, well, we were saying 371 ratified treaties in those days, but mine, Deloria, and Clifford Little, 
found a few more. So you got an even 400 that were ratified, each one of which, you know, the contents vary and the purpose varied from instrument to instrument, but the common denominator there is that each one of them, by virtue of being negotiated, entered into, and ratified by the Senate of the United States, conveyed formal recognition by the United States as the other party or parties to those treaties. Sovereign nation in its own right. Okay? Note, I didn't say state. And I don't mean like states of the Union, although it comes from the same, each of the 13 colonies was a sovereign state in its own right. Okay, and they formed the Article Confederation, and on that basis, subordinated individual sovereignties to central government. But a state is a centralized form of political, social, and economic organization, primarily political. Nations, on the other hand, they, they affect this mutant form, talking about nation states, and I could not name you a half a dozen nation states in the entire planet. They always do it because the state always announces that everything within its claim boundaries is part of a single nation. They're not. But a nation is definable, has been defined, is defensible, is self-defining, okay? There's about, according to Bernard Niesman, who I paid attention to on these sorts of things, somewhere between four and 5,000 identifiable nations on the planet. There's 200 recognized states. So we just do the arithmetic. Here's those states composed on the basis of forcible incorporation originally of multiple nations, some of which were agreeable to that idea, most of which were not. Of those that were not, some have been beaten down to in position of acceptance physically, doctrinally, or both. The means of uh, over successive generations indoctrinating people to see themselves in turn defined by central authority, which is usually a given group within the polity. I mean, it's fairly well known. You can go back to 1973-74, look at uh, Carnoy, The Education of Cultural Imperialism, which was a brilliant book at the time. He was drawn on Mimi when Mimi was still good. Uh, when he's talking about colonizer and colonized. Okay, and Fanon also got into how the colonizer indoctrinates the colonized to be accepting of position. Now, where we're going is a little further than the acceptance, but to actually internalize the identity. So that, like Singor in Africa, you would identify first and foremost as African, perhaps, but French African. Okay. And then ultimately, they're identifying as part of that fringe compact. Right, right. Okay. You've got indigenous people who have been indoctrinated over 100, 150 years, successive generations, to not understand their identity outside the terms you find that federal paradigm. Okay, we're trying to break loose of that and then define for ourselves which is what self-determination is all about, where our interests lie, what our relations were to be with other nations, each other as indigenous nations, but also with that central authority, which was the basis of the treaty. Okay. Engage in treaty enforcement, which in a lot of cases had to do with recovery of land and resource rights reconfigured the United States on the basis of its own law in a way, but where that uh, comported with the articulated canons of international law. Now it gets a little complicated, okay? <laughs> but yeah, it was pushing. Now, and when you, well, actually all along, you had people from the so-called Indian Reorganization Act and the so-called tribal governments that were established there under, which were always subordinate to the Interior Department of the United States. Now think about that. Indian governments established by the United States on a model. I mean, and the Interior Department wrote the constitutions. Some indigenous peoples had something you could call a constitution. 
great loyalties to the Haudenosaunee Confederation, for example, and there's others, but most did not. I mean, the Constitution was unwritten. It was an understanding between people who were part of that group, and the group understood itself by self-definition. Okay? That was an inherent characteristic. But these are treated people recognized as other countries, sovereign nations, in law, U.S. law, who are now, their relationship is in the Interior Department. U.S. relation with other nations is in the Department of State. Right, right. Okay? So all of these sovereign governments established, so-called sovereign governments established under the Indian Reorganization Act were automatically under the Secretary of Interior. So that's one part of the executive branch, all right? The uh, Secretary of Interior, actually the Bureau of Indian Affairs is the Deputy Secretary of Interior, who's then responsible to Secretary of Interior, who's then responsible to the United States President. Okay. So your government is now fairly far down in this mishmash. Your level of sovereignty is not what it must be. So that's what we're pushing for, but all along, you had these people, I'm the head of a sovereign government, crew cut and turkey feather headdress and the whole shot, waving a piece of paper, kind of like Joe McCartney saying, you know, I'm so- head of a sovereign government, and I've got a letter here from the Secretary of Interior attesting to that fact. Give me permission to say this, and not in any sense being conscious of the contradiction, the irony, the in essence, self-subjugation that was involved in that. And that's after AIM sort of was shot to pieces and fell apart in a way, in a lot of areas based upon its own internal contradictions, personality disputes, and all of, all of that, which was fostered and fomented by federal repression. Yeah, sure. But, hey, when the deformed consciousness and personality issues to do enough damage to herself to accomplish it. We really didn't need that much help. <laughs> Got plenty of help, but... Sure, sure. So you, you see the sort of uh, normative thing is back to the IRA style. And where AIM was inclusive, as indigenous peoples had always been inclusive, now you see this sort of exclusionary thing where people are expelling members from their roles and all that in order to raise... Um, the per capita checks and all of that. So, yeah, you sovereignty is an interesting word, but, you know, the word has to describe the actual circumstance and what's being passed off of sovereignty now. In most cases, it is not. But there are people who are genuinely struggling for it, and you see a resurgence of that with DAPL. And, frankly, some of the um, Cheyenne River... And uh, for a while, at least at Standing Rock and elsewhere, you saw tribal governments actually trying to stand up and take a sovereign position. Still confused and in an awkward situation. But, all right, tie that sovereignty business back to your question on red-black interaction, okay? How you had Fred Hampton's son out there, all right? Black Lives Matter people on the ground. You had, you know, black support to essentially this assertion of indigenous sovereignty in concrete terms and really harsh conditions. <laughs> I'll testify to how harsh it can get on Northern Plains wintering. So the million-dollar question, then, with all this information swirling around. I get a million if I answer it? Yeah. Well, you got to answer it the right way. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, of course I do. With all this info swirling in our head. um, So the number one thing to make what you would consider progressive social change, you know, however you define that term. um, And when I've thought about this a lot and talked to a number of people about it, and I always come back to this kind of, we started our discussion about this, the political duopoly. 
you know, how essentially we don't really have any choice. It's oligarchy either way. For me, that would be kind of a good starting point. But uh, for you and what's informed your perspective over these 70-something years, you said, what do you think has to change? Well, everything is contingent on consciousness. So transformation of consciousness is the key issue, all right? Always. I mean, conscious beings mm-hmm. act on the basis of consciousness. Whether that consciousness is maimed and distorted and contrary to any kind of reasonable self-interest or human decency is another issue. But, you know, what we endeavor to do is instill that, but also present alternatives. And that has be not just a rhetorical gesture or flowing prose or whatever. Those are all elements that go into the process, but you've got to actualize some things and show they can work. You've got to seriously confront authority from time to time. And actually, you know, they took down the blockade at uh, Standing Rock. So the blockaders land protectors, water protectors, dispersed, basically. And the police moved in, burned their camps, and Energy Transportation Systems Incorporated, Etsy, pushed the uh, pipeline under the Hawaii, Lake Hawaii, immediately. The pipeline was ready to go. Well, that's not a good ending. But now we got it up and running. There's oil going through it, and... A court found against them because they still, you know, Trump ordered that Obama, having gone along with it right up to the point where it's becoming an embarrassment, and suddenly at the last minute he, you know, orders a halt until they had done the environmental impact assessment that they hadn't done. It was required by law before they put the damn thing in the first place. So he says, okay, you got to stop now until you do what you should have done in the first place. And then he leaves office, and the first thing Trump does is saying, to hell with that, and go ahead and put it through. Okay. All right. So now we're a couple of years down the line. They got it going. Oil's flowing. And a judge says, hmm, never did that environmental assessment you were supposed to have done before you started this, so stop pumping oil. <laughs> now you're talking about billions of dollars. Actually, Etsy's stock dropped about 16 points overnight off that. They've got a temporary go-ahead, so they're pumping oil again for the moment, but they're hearing coming up. And that environmental impact statement still isn't going to have been done, so there's really not much of a basis in law for the federal courts to say, well, just go ahead, it's paid complete. Right, right. They may well do that because there's lots of things that are happening that have no basis in law when it's in the interests of those in power to see them happen. You know, the status of every American Indian people in the country is perfect evidence of that. And the red-lined inner cities are perfect evidence of that because it's contrary from 1950 onward. It's basically illegal to engage in redlining and this kind of discriminatory lending and all the rest of it went into creating these black enclaves in cities. Um, Yeah, that hasn't stopped. How do you instill consciousness? Like practically, how do you instill, is that education? Are you talking about education? Yeah, but education is not necessarily through, you know, institutional sense, but you talk to people. Um, in the community groups and in organizing activities, just in regular conversation. You go out and talk when you're invited to go talk. You do things like this. Yes. Yep. You know? Yeah, we call it uh, public sociology. It's kind of like an area of sociology, hopefully not as dry as the sociology you were talking about earlier. But the goal is to kind of engage people in discussions that are usually limited to the academic world only. And, um, and, and it truly is supposed to be in, in a back and forth, not just like I'm the expert, mm-hmm. let me tell you what I think. And, you know, you do, you encourage that. And that's one of the reasons I started the blog was just to get people to talk about 
just to create a space for dialogue, uh, knowing that we don't all necessarily end up at the same spot, but we have to ask, we have to ask the questions. But also after the best of your ability to actually engage what you're saying in some sense, like I say, I'm falling way off the level of engagement that I had say even 10 years ago. When's the last time I stood trial? In 2006, I would suppose. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're resting on your laurels now. Come on, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting rusty. Get back to work. Getting rusty. (laughs) You've been listening to an interview with Ward Churchill on our social landscape. I'd like to thank Ward for taking the time to share his thoughts with me. I originally asked for 10 to 15 minutes of his time, and we ended up talking for over an hour. It was an enjoyable and enlightening conversation, and I'm grateful for it. Thanks also to his wife, Natsu, for her assistance in setting things up. The music you hear is from the 1970 album, The End of the Game, by Peter Green, founding member of Fleetwood Mac, who passed away a few months ago. I'm J.R. Woodward. Thanks for listening. Thank you.